Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, I'm Paul. And I'm Rad, and welcome to Game for Anything, the podcast where we're disgustingly down for whatever comes around. Today's episode where Rad wrote the intro, that's important. The Beatles have risen from the dead to release new music. Let's talk about that later. And Rad joins the circus. We certainly have opinions. I think it was a beautifully, masterfully, if anything, written intro. It's also partially lies because I didn't join the circus. I went to Luna Park. And Luna Park is one of two buildings in Australia with enormous clown mouths that you are forced to walk into if you want to get to the fun stuff, which seems needlessly cruel, right? Wait, one of two? What's the second one? Well, we have a Luna Park in Melbourne and it, it too has a gigantic hell mouth that you have to walk through. Oh, you said one of two in Sydney, implying that there was a second clown mouth in Sydney. What if there was and you just weren't aware of it? That's why I was asking you. Ah. Where's the second clown mouth, Paul? It only appears during the eclipse and it screams the entire time. <laughs> It's really awful. So Luna Park is obviously a absolute icon and mainstay of Sydney. It's one of, like, you've got the Opera House, you've got uh, the Harbour Bridge, and yep. you've got the Big Clown Mouth, which is far more famous <laughs> than the Melbourne Clown Mouth, which is hidden in a weird little alleyway. Melbourne it, Luna Park's weird. Yeah, it's a little gross, and it's also a bit lo-fi, and it's smaller. If you were going to ask who would win in a fight, Although they're just mouths, so maybe who'd win in like a smooching contest? Sydney's is much bigger and much nicer to look at. (laughs) Luna Park was also built in like the 30s, like 1935 or something like that. And apparently it is one of the most well-preserved examples of like an art deco Uh, amusement park in the entire world. Yeah, it's an incredible architectural feat. And what's really odd for me, Rad, is that uh, my dad was a cop in the 80s. And during the 80s, Luna Park was weirdly a sort of hotbed for very specific crimes. I don't Really? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So one of dad's first calls, he and his partner were called there because um, apparently the security guard at Luna Park... And this was after the fires, so it was a bit run down and a bit creepy. So dad and his partner got there at, I think, about 11 or 12 at night. And uh, this security guard calls them over because it's on the water. You can actually see it from the harbour. It's a beautiful spot. They head down these rocks just past one of the Ferris wheels and those weird wooden slidey things. And there's like a dead body floating in the water. And <gasps> the, the cop dad was with informs dad that basically the police in Sydney have a sort of he who smelt it dealt it rule. So this cop is like, look, technically speaking, if it touches down, if it touches land, it's our jurisdiction. So he gets like a two by four from the construction site. Oh my God. Shoves it back out and just sends it floating back into open water. Oh my God. Yes. Very funny, but I'm sure the family of the deceased would not have appreciated 
that. Well, the thing is, they, it's not like he got a passport stamp, so they actually wouldn't know. So, for like, somebody's gone to the morgue to identify a body, not realising that it's almost bounced down in clown mouth territory. So... There you go. There you go, yeah. So, okay. Horrible crimes notwithstanding, it is an incredible, I believe it's like a heritage listed site and they reopened it and kind of refurbished it, I believe, back in the 90s. They put the Big Dipper in, they got lots of noise complaints, but it is part of the fabric of Sydney's architecture. So what were you actually doing there? Yeah, I did realise like midway through you speaking that I just said, I went to Luna Park and it's like, (laughs) rad, that's not a story. Lots of people go lots of places. Uh, Well, I was there because they uh, were giving a preview of a new interactive experience that they're bringing Mm. called Dream Circus. So basically the idea of it is that they're like, there's going to be, so it's going to be like a three, well, not 3D, but like a, it's like, all right. Do do you know? (laughs) I do. It's just... I'll get someone else to explain. This is this is uh, John Hughes, who's like CEO of Luna Park. Dream Circus is a world first immersive attraction coming to Sydney December twenty two. It's got a bunch of technology sitting behind it. It will take audiences through a journey of discovery or through a journey of escape. It has three sixty degree projection, spatially mapped audio, embedded technology like screens and holograms, and it's gonna feel like virtual reality but without the goggles. Okay, so I think I understand now. So it's VR-ish, but I mean, what did you actually make of it? This is the reason why I maybe couldn't explain exactly what it looked like and also why I just said that I went to Luna Park because uh, this preview <laughs> this preview was a preview. Huh. And so I got there, they put us in a little room, they told us about what it was they were planning, how it's world first, um, it's going to be using a bunch of different technologies, like they said, projectors and spatial audio to create an immersive entertainment experience. And then they said, come with us into the Big Top. Have you ever been to the Big Top in Luna Park, Sydney? No, I haven't. But I assume you're going to describe something pretty special. Um, No, I'm not. Because... Okay. Because it really, it's just a concrete box. It's oh. like an enormous concrete box. Like there's music venues or kind of entertainment venues across Australia. For example, the Forum in Melbourne yep. is this like gorgeous old theatre with tiered seats. Uh, that's not what the Big Top is. It's a giant concrete box and oh. you shove bands and things in there and it's great. They bring us in to see the new thing that they're putting on and Paul, it was a construction site. <laughs> Ooh, okay. So hang on. Have you been had? I mean, was this a con? This sounds very... Were they not ready in time? Like, what happened? No, so it's supposed to be opening in seven weeks, and (laughs) they're basically just building the hype for what it is that's coming. Right. So the idea is they're going to basically build a set and uh, put on a show that involves actors and acrobats and music and projections that change the space that you're in. And it does actually sound kind of cool. And I got to have a chat with Lucy Keeler, uh, who is the head of strategy and experiences at Luna Park about what it is they're putting together. So I've been told that there is nothing like this in the world. How is it different from other places that have projectors and kind of spatial audio? I've heard there's holograms. I've heard there's moving screens, but like what else specifically? I want you to go like as nitty gritty as you possibly can. It's a really good question. And the thing that is really unique about this space, which it is, it's a big space, 
but it's the layering, right? And then the use of all of the technology as a combined force. So yes, you can projection map walls. We can projection map buildings. We can projection map whatever you like. Like we're in a really interesting space to innovate now in that um, projection technology world, but anyone can project on anything, right? The thing that is really different about this space is everything else we're doing with it. So first of all, building a set design. So we're building a old school proscenium arch. And you wonder why on earth anyone want to do that? Isn't the whole point to like get rid of the fourth wall and do a new surround thing? <laughs> Actually, what we're doing is building a traditional proscenium arch, which sounds bonkers. I think it but sounds it's great because it's that thing where a projection on a flat wall it doesn't pull you in, but as soon as you put some set piece there and you project on that and you change what that architecture looks like, it feels more real. Exactly, right? Feels more real, which means that you can then surprise more when that becomes something entirely different. You can take people from a world that feels like, oh, look, it's something that I know, right? Mm. This beautiful ornate theatre, I know this thing. But then that thing becomes something completely different and then transforms again and again. But the thing about the technology, which is the crux of this whole thing, is that we're doing everything, right? It's not just projection on a box, but when you embed LED into that on a motor, you can surprise people. What we're aiming to do and what I really, really, really want to achieve is that people who understand technical production for a film, theatre, everything, sits in that space and isn't quite sure how we did it. Oh, okay. If we win at that, I win at life, right? <laughs> so one second, an LED screen will be there and then they're on the fastest motors you've ever seen. Oh. So it's there and then it's gone. And then you can layer three different layers in that proscenium arch, which is beautiful. It's a holographic screen with a hard screen, an LED screen and also a back wall. So the combination of those things enable you to, to um, drive narrative in a way that no one's ever tried before. The thing that's different about Sydney's immersive big top dream circus show is that this is an entirely narrative driven show. You can stand in a beautiful immersive Gallery symphony to an yeah. old painter or you can really make someone feel something. This is a funny show. Like it is deeply, deeply hilarious and never taking itself seriously. And I think this is critical to Luna, right? Luna Park is not a serious place and that's actually the most important thing about it. It is a place of magic and it has this intrepid history of all of the things it's been through, but it's still a place of joy at its very core. So this crazy show is really a celebration of that. It is just utterly joyful. You're going to leave having cried, laughed, and then want to go again all in 52 minutes. You're good at selling this. <laughs> um, I, uh, I didn't like Luna Park, right? I never used to come. Hmm. I used to be the sad person holding the bags while the people who like roller coasters go on the roller coasters. I don't like roller coasters. Yeah. So actually the things that I'm contributing to Luna Park are the things for people like me who don't necessarily want to come here on a ride. Yeah. This place has so much more to give that's more than rides, mm. you know, because this is all of ours. This, this park is all of ours. It's Sydney's park. It shouldn't just be for people who like the Big Dipper. Well, it's interesting because being here 
just this afternoon, I've kind of realized that I think everyone has a bit of a different relationship to Luna Park. I don't think of it as a place with amusement rides. I think of it actually as a music venue because I used to come here a bunch as a kid and watch bands. Um, So it's interesting to think about how that's going to change in the future Mm -hmm. as you have this new space that's going to be used in a very modern and very, very different kind of way. So are you hoping that it kind of gets positioned as this experiential kind of show space? Or are you hoping that it just becomes an absolutely cracking live music venue that can have a really visual element to it as well? Or is are you hoping that it'll become more of a gallery space? It's the greatest question of all, is what is the future of a space like this? We know that the big top has been a really important part of the music industry for 20 years. And the decision to take it offline as a concert venue has not been an easy or a light decision to make. But we really believe that it is actually the future of concerts. So what we've done is we've taken away the big grey box and we're going to give it back as something that you can be in because the visual experience of music now is just as important as the music itself, I think, in my experience of music. Like, I love watching, you know, the journey of all of those visuals that go with the songs. Like, it adds a whole other level. But what if you can be in it? You know, what if you can watch somebody, live music playing for you, and you're actually inside their mind at the same time with all the visuals they created for their own music? So, look, we've backed a really... You know, we're all in. I don't know what comes next. And I am also not interested in what comes next because right now I'm doing something really important that will become something in the future and I don't know where it's going to land. And that's one of the most interesting things for me is I don't know where the big top and the immersive experience is going to evolve to. It's a moment in time. It represents the best of the best right now in a whole new genre of creativity This is the best thing you can do with every piece of technology you could imagine and the greatest minds in multiple sectors. This is an incredible turning point from which I don't know where it's going to go. And how cool is that? Very. Well, you said every technology that I can imagine. Are you playing with temperature? Not playing with temperature. Yeah, see, I can imagine a lot of things, Lucy. (laughs) Yeah, it's a good point. We also opted out on, um, we thought, what if we make it? You know, we, we, we do uh, like smell overlays and then we thought, wow, no, that could really push it into it. We're not there yet from a technology point of view to make that good. Yeah. It's got to be good first. I also just think that it would largely be unpleasant. Yeah. For many years, and I've done 12 years of Vivid Sydney, right? And a lot of it's experimentation. You have great failures and great successes. And, you know, it's all about growing this what is light-based art. And many times along the way, you see people um, celebrating toys. You know, look at my cool flashy thing I have. Look how cool it is. But what are you doing with it? What's Mm. the point of it? What are you making and then resource it with the technology that you need to make the point that you're trying to make? Like what is the point of the work? And we're there now. That's where we are in the evolution of technology is what are you doing and why are you doing it? If I put heaters into an immersive big top for a dream circus, it's just for fun and only because I think it's cool, but (laughs) it's not for a genuine purpose. So Mm. everything is 100% backing a narrative, which is all for a reason. Thank you so much for chatting with me. It's a pleasure. 
So I'll be honest, it does sound pretty great. I mean, on the one hand, I was worried that you just got fire festivaled, you know, that you just got pony conned. <laughs> there wasn't like a, a little uh, inflatable pool full of balls in the middle of the room, I assume. But on the other hand, she does sound genuinely excited by the prospect of what is to come. So do you think they can pull this off in seven, we- <laughs> seven weeks? Look, I... What I saw was just scaffolding, so there wasn't even like oh like a small piece of it up yet, which is fine. Like I'm not a construction expert. I don't know how long it is going to take or whether they'll hit the deadline. Yeah. Um, I hope they do. But I walked in a little bit skeptical, which I think you're going to when you don't actually get to see anything yet. Yeah. And they couldn't go into massive detail about the tech that they're using because also a bunch of it's like proprietary and it's very under wraps at the moment. So So I was a little bit like, I I don't get to see anything. I don't get to learn anything. But chatting to Lucy, hearing her passion, that kind of got me on board. And I am really interested to see what they do with it because my vision at the moment is like a mad rave (laughs) in the big top. Like, Skrillex is there. No, DJ Mandy from TikTok is there. Sure. And it just takes you like under the ocean and then into a spooky Doctor Strange-esque world and then Inception happens and it looks like the walls are folding in on each other or something like that. Like, it does sound like... It sounds really upsetting. It sounds really traumatic. What you described was going to a multi-million dollar empty box full of scaffolding and then having a very bad trip. And then leaving. I'm into it. And I think, as Lucy said, having those kind of visuals folded in with a live music experience could be really, really cool. And Dream Circus is kind of putting music in as well. So I think it'll work. But this is currently, for me, all in theory because I didn't get to see anything yet. What's interesting about this, Rad, is that it does sort of... At least the onus was on you to imagine something far greater than the sum of the parts of what they actually had to present to you, right? And what's been really interesting for Beatles fans for decades now is the fact that there have been a bunch of tracks of theirs that have been languishing in sort of like eight-track crappiness and... We've had to kind of imagine what would have happened, for example, not just if that stuff could be restored, but also if John Lennon hadn't been killed. I mean, would the Beatles be together now? So I do need to point out, Paul, that you poo-pooed my intro. And in fact, some of the Beatles are dead, so they would be rising from the dead in order to release this new music. (laughs) What's funny is the phrase uh, digital necromancy has actually been used to describe what has been done. (laughs) With this song now, necromancy, for those of you who aren't familiar with the fantasy trope, is bringing things back from the dead, and it's not good. It's sacrilege necromancy, right? It is meant to, it's an insult to the living because it's kind of ghoulish and you're using the reanimated remains of people you loved to do things that they wouldn't normally do. That's necromancy. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. See, I don't. I don't know if this qualifies as necromancy. I think it does, but I do need to point out that whilst it may be not of the Lord, it is perfectly legal. Wait, necromancy? Yes. Is it? I don't know, actually. I feel like there's no laws about it. There's got to be... 
I'm pretty sure Australia law about raising the dead. Technically speaking, Jeezy Crazy is a zombie because he came back after three days. Three days? Yeah. Yeah. He'd be fine. I mean, look, if you kept him refrigerated, three days is fine. Okay. Actually, I think it probably depends on how you're trying to raise the dead because this could fall under desecration of human remains. Sure. Well, you- But that's neither here nor there because this is digital. (laughs) This is the Beatles. Look, okay, let me just wind this back because Rad, you and I are both, uh, we love music. So I'm going to start with the audio side of things before we get to the ghoulish necromancy aspect. So- Revolver, the Beatles album, was getting restored and all the Beatles albums were pretty much mixed in mono, which is where you do these beautiful tracks and then you dump them into a single audio track and it's all mixed together like a soup. And turning them from mono, like this, into stereo, which sounds like this, can be a bit of a nightmare. I know that you and I have... um I would say nuanced views on AI, you were on Q&A talking about it, and I often go back and forth about what is and isn't okay to do with AI. For example, um, AI-generated art is a really tricky field. Yes, certainly. I think that there's uh, a lot to it, and one of my big views on it is basically that AI art or AI image generation Mm. was something that was developed from its own background and culture of tech and not from an art background. So it doesn't have the context and history of artists and art culture, uh, which turns it into something very different because then they're kind of co-opting that culture when they call it art and create artworks. But I could get into that whole thing. That's not what we're talking about. Well, actually, it's not far off. So what's interesting is oh. the, the technology that was used here, Rad, to actually start separating the uh, the mono mix into stereo and start uh, grabbing all the different tracks. So vocals, drums, everything down to finger clicks, piano, and taking them out and extracting them into their own tracks. The tech that they used to do this actually began because the New Zealand police force had this piece of like super confidential tech that they used where they'd use AI to, let's say there's a conversation between two drug dealers and it's being uh, recorded through like a planted microphone under a desk in a room. And you know, you're getting room noise, white noise, banging on the table. Uh, Everyone's, people aren't mic'd up. So you're getting left and right and it's all soupy. So this AI would actually allow them to isolate uh, vocal tracks and grab the audio and so that you can get really clean testimony from these people. So Paul and I both do a little bit of audio editing. I mean... We make a podcast, we do. what can I say? Uh, but I play with quite a lot of plugins because I'm a perfectionist. I like things to sound as good as possible. Mm-hmm. Paul edits this podcast, which is why it sounds the way it does. I'm just <laughs> kidding. That was a joke, Paul. You do you do actually do a better job than I would. <laughs> I thought it was a compliment. I was taking the compliment. <laughs> oh, no, I was making it. Anyway, I was making a joke at your expense because I love you. Um, but <laughs> But even just like the plugins that are commercially available to people like us are incredible. The ability to take out, you know, unwanted sounds, make things sound better just with a click of a button is very, very impressive. So I can only imagine what the tech that's behind, you know, a steel door is like. It's crazy. So basically Peter Jackson and co took some Beatles recordings from the Get Back sessions, which was like 150 hours of audio recorded on different recorders, hanging from rooftops in different sized rooms, shape rooms, candid, off mic, everything, just an absolute nightmare. They took a bunch down to a New Zealand police station to the little tech area. And they said, do you mind if we like run some tape through this software and they brought it down and they did like a 15 minute test and the results were crap. But then the uh, audio engineers working for Peter Jackson were like, can we have this algorithm? Cause we kind of want to take it and do it 
better. And then they went away and finessed it and did like a high fidelity version because here's the thing. When you are grabbing audio of two drug mules from inside a van or whatever, you don't need Dolby Atmos. You just need it to be audible, right? Oftentimes in the legal profession, you're under a bit of a time crunch. Whereas Peter Jackson's folks are like, the Beatles did this decades ago. We are in no rush. So they took their time and they did it right. And it sounds incredible. I have so many questions. Number one, Mm. why is Peter Jackson involved? Basically, he's just a huge Beatles fan, right? And... He did Revolver, they did Revolver, they did Get Back, which is a multi-part documentary series. And if you watch it back, it's, it's, I mean, it's absolutely incredible. So basically millionaire or possibly billionaire just doing whatever he wants. Okay, I understand. What's interesting through this story, Rad, is for me, this is such a noble use of AI. So the, the sound people who are working on this use um, something called MAL, which is named after the audio engineer for the Beatles, but it's also a machine learning uh, program. And what they do is source separation. So they don't do regenerative audio. They take things that exist and they clean them up. They're not actually generating new audio. They're not, they're not taking a John Lennon soundtrack and making him say stuff he didn't say. They are much like archaeologists or, you know, forensic pathologists or museum curators. They're taking the audio tracks out, cleaning them off and putting them back in the way they were meant to be done. Okay. Second question. How did they know that the New Zealand police had this software and addendum like an A bracket to that question? Yeah. Why did the New Zealand police give them the algorithm? There's a certain, let's face it, Rad, there's a certain cultural whimsy that New Zealand has attached. A bit of a, oh yeah? There's a, there seems to be a sort of a good-natured <laughs> shrug in everybody's direction. First of all, yeah, how did Peter Jackson know that the New Zealand police had an apparently secret algorithm for grabbing audio from criminals? And yeah, the New Zealand police, I guess, Peter Jackson's a cultural icon, you know? And I, I look, here's the thing, Rad. I'm assuming Peter Jackson and co walked in and said, this is the Beatles. We're using this for the Beatles. Not my ex-wife has been saying stuff behind my back. It feels <laughs> like it, it feels like they went in with their, with their intentions very much on front street. Right. And that seems to be the spirit with which this whole thing has been done. So basically back in the mid nineties, uh, the remaining Beatles, and yes, one of them was dead at this point. We'll get to necromancy later. So John had passed away. He was assassinated. George, Paul and Ringo get back together And Yoko had given them a bunch of songs that John had recorded. And so the three remaining Beatles were like, why don't we clean these up, do some extra instrumentals and turn these into Beatles songs. And they did. They did Real Love and Free as a Bird. And the third track called Now and Then, not only did they not enjoy doing it, but John was sitting in a hotel room in New York when he recorded it on a little, like a dictaphone. And you could hear traffic in the background. He had the TV on, his lyrics were wispy, there was like a loud tape hiss, and George didn't like the song, so they basically just binned it. And then, and then, after the Get Back doco, Paul gets in touch with Peter Jackson and goes, hey, could you do me a flavor Flav? Obviously, he didn't say that uh, in those exact words. And could you- You don't know that. I don't, you know what? I don't know that. I don't know Paul personally. (laughs) Could you please maybe run this track now and then through your fancy algorithm and just send it back? And after all the work they'd done on the documentary, this was a piece of piss and apparently it worked really well. So now Paul and Ringo and the son of the original producer and a whole bunch of people have gotten together and made an actual- swing at now and then and it it works beautifully and paul you sent me a little youtube video that's a comparison of the 1977 demo and this new algorithmically polished version and i haven't heard this yet so i'm just gonna have a quick listen great you know i kind of like 
the almost shitty lo-fi quality of the demo. There is something to it. It does have a sort of rawness. And this is just him jamming in a hotel room and it's very kind of pure, I guess. You can hear the quality of the voice. You can hear the kind of ambient noise. All right, so that was the demo. I'm going to hear the uh, polished version now. It's just completely different, isn't it? Yeah. So did they keep the original piano and vocals? It's the original vocals. So this is John's vocals that have been cleaned up using AI. That's literally just, that's John singing. That's not an algorithm making a John voice. That's John that's been cleaned up, juiced up. And then you've got Paul doing backup vocals. There was a George solo that was played back in the 90s that they've cleaned up and put back in. There's some isolated vocals from various Beatles tracks. And then, in a really, really fun turn, they got an orchestra to record the strings but couldn't tell them that it was a Beatles track or they would freak out and they'd probably leak it. So they told them it was like a little bit of a McCartney B-side. Only only when the single came out did they, these session musicians find out they'd done strings on a Beatles track, which is gorgeous. Paul, I have such mixed feelings about this because the tech is incredible. Like the fact that they could do that, they could make it sound that polished and then obviously add all that extra instrumentation on top yeah. is just so wonderful and surprising and exciting and I'm glad they did it but then at the same time I'm kind of like I don't know that I feel anything was wrong with the demo like it had a rawness that I think was really wonderful I think that I feel like it had maybe a little bit more soul than the 2023 version anyway. Yeah, it's an interesting predicament because the Beatles, once they stopped doing their touring stuff, Rad, because they basically were two bands. They were a touring band who were turning out singles, and that was great. But the second they started to get musically interesting was when they went into the studio and started futzing around with technology. So the reason their records went so experimental is because they did things they did things they couldn't replicate live. And so they effectively became a studio-based band trying to push the envelope with tech. They talked with Sean, John's son. They talked with all the producers. And everybody sort of said John really enjoyed messing around with technology and pushing the envelope. It's not a traditional Beatles song. It's more like a really fun experiment. But if you want to get to the necromancy part of the discussion, which I really do, (laughs) you now need to... Okay, so the song comes out. And the song gets dropped with a 12-minute documentary, which I highly recommend watching because it uses beautiful restored footage. It talks to the Beatles. It really captures the sort of vibe and the spirit with which this project was intended. And then... Peter Jackson, who admitted he was kind of uh, scared about making a music video because he'd never made one before, Rad, he releases the official music video a few days after. Goodwill's high, vibes are on point, and then the video comes out. Okay, I haven't seen this video yet because Paul saw it immediately and messaged me and was like, don't watch this. I want you to watch it in front of me for the podcast. Uh, So I'm going to do that now. Great. It looks like a shitty 2000s homebrew music video so far. So this is video they shot back in the 1995 sessions. So this is uh, George, Paul and Ringo together. Oh yeah, the fade to a sunset. I mean, so far everything about this just feels a little bit poorly produced, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah, it does look oddly cheap. Just you wait. What What you're probably noticing is that uh, Ringo and Paul aren't in the same room. So in- Yes. Yes. I will also... Uh, You're getting some mid-journey vibes uh, here? Okay. <laughs> yep. 
I, I will fully admit that I don't think that I'm uh, familiar enough with the Beatles and across all of their eras from when they were young to when they were old to be able to accurately identify each of them at all of their ages. But it certainly looks like, uh, yeah, digital necromancy. It certainly looks like they have taken some videos of them from their heyday yep. and animated them. <laughs> just spliced them together. Just, yep. Yeah. It gets uh-huh. worse. It gets worse. And <laughs> I don't know if it can get worse, Paul. No, you just you wait. This is pretty bad. Did they just like... De- oh my gosh, the hand <laughs> movements. They also like just chose to get them to do the goofiest stuff ever. You know you could just show footage of them being goofy and play the song over the top and it would work better. Yeah, certainly. Um, so was this like a full body deep fake situation? No, I think that what they've done is they've gotten really beautiful footage of the Beatles goofing around between takes and then have just used AI to splice it in with Paul and Ringo playing now for no discernible reason, I think, other than they could. I just saw my own face watching this. (laughs) I think you're right in that because the clip looks so incredibly cheap, it has kind of ruined the song. Which is such a shame because actually I've listened to the song about 50 times since it came out and the song itself is gorgeous. It's a really great song. The production's great. It feels like a Beatles track eventually and... Interestingly, Rad, there is such a... When you go back and listen to the Beatles, it's fine because it's the Beatles. You know it's the Beatles. Here, there's a cultural weight, like, crushing it because they've pitched it as the last Beatles song. But after a few listens, it feels like it. It feels like a Beatles song. And that video really does feel like a travesty. So I would urge people (laughs) to, if you're a Beatles fan, just watch the making of... Just listen to the track. Just avoid this weird graveyard of graven images. The the fact that at the end there's still images that they've mid-journeyed into moving is really creepy. Just watch it while pretending that it's a fan-made film. Yes. I think that's what you have to do. And this really shows me that whilst we love tech and experimentation, using these new technologies is so important because that's how we find what works and doesn't work. Mm. Sometimes stuff doesn't work, and if you're as big as Peter Jackson, perhaps you should recognize that and simply not release it. Yeah, Maybe pivot. It's Do the experiment in the privacy of your own <laughs> studio and then say, guys, we may have invested a lot in this. We learned a lot. It didn't work. Don't release it. Yeah, and in the words of Dr. Ian Malcolm, as played by Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park, Your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. But the thing that we should do is end this podcast right here. Thanks for listening to Game for Anything. Even though we're Game for Anything, apparently we are not game for AI recreations of the Beatles awkwardly dancing in front of an orchestra. Very uncomfortable. My name's Rad. I'm Paul, and thank you for listening to Game for Anything. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.